everybody, and welcome back to another installment of the Thrilling Adventures of Superman. This is episode 5, and I'm very excited about this episode, not only because it means we've passed the one-month mark of the show, and who thought that would happen, but the story we'll be looking at this episode is a marked improvement over those from the last three episodes. It is a shorter story, and pretty straightforward at that, but it is a serious night and day difference from what has come to now. This episode, we will be taking a look at Action Comics number 5, which was released around September 6, 1938. Along with the standard 10 cent cover price, the issue had an October 1938 cover date. The cover art, which again makes no reference to Superman, is by Leo Amelia and features a guy who is not Doc Savage, but sure looks very much like him. It's a man with his shirt-ripped Doc Savage style, standing atop a sand dune, surrounded by advancing Arabian thieves wielding scimitars. In his hand, he holds a pistol by the barrel, ready to use it as his last weapon in defense against the attackers. And I really like this cover. It captures a moment in time, just mere seconds before the action begins, as this man is no doubt in for the fight of his life. And despite my criticisms of last issue's cover, I really think that Leo Amelia did a nice run of covers for the title. We will have one more uh, on the uh, the issue we'll be covering next episode, and then that'll be it. But it really is a nice run. This issue also features something not seen on previous issues, and that is a large yellow circle in the upper left corner indicating the book is 64 pages of thrills. As I mentioned in episode 3, it was around this time that DC slowly started promoting the content of the books more, and we will see that even more starting in a few issues. The story inside the book was written by Jerome Siegel and illustrated by Joe Schuster. Editor's credit goes to Vin Sullivan, as always. The title given in reprints for this story are The Big Scoop and Superman and the Dam. As I mentioned, this story is shorter than the most Superman stories from this era. It's only nine pages long. All four of the stories we've covered so far in the show have been 13 pages long, which was the length of most Superman stories from this time. When we get into the Superman title, we'll start seeing longer stories, but for the first couple of years, the majority of the Superman stories were 13 pages. As for this one being shorter, I'm not quite sure why it was. None of the other features in the issue are longer, and there are no additional features aside from some extra filler material. So it could have been an issue of a deadline crunch, or a miscommunication between Siegel and Sullivan, or possibly something was edited out. As we've seen in the previous stories that, that I've looked at, each one of them has had at least one weird non-sequitur or a bizarre tangent, and this one doesn't. And that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. Um, my feeling is that they were still playing with page length at this point, or that this script was possibly left over from what Siegel and Schuster had done before the strip was bought by DC. But regardless of the reason, the story is shorter. Like I said, it's only nine pages, and that's fine, because there's plenty of action packed into it, and it doesn't really need to be any longer than that. There are places where they could have expanded, but it's, it's not something that needed to be done. In addition to being shorter, the feature also opens up a bit different than the stories we've covered till now. All of those have opened up with a half-page splash that served as the first panel of the story, 
But here, the top third of the page is just a, I guess you'd call it a title banner. It has a drawing of Superman from just above his waist in the corner. And once again, the shield on Superman's chest has changed style. It's the elongated pentagon that we saw in one panel last issue. And while the S in the center is colored yellow again, for the first time, the shield is given a thick red border. Also in this title banner is the Superman logo type, a simpler version than we've seen so far, but still a rough version that was hand-drawn by Schuster, and the subtitle, Another Astounding Adventure of the Strongest Man on Earth. And you know, in light of other descriptive lines that would come along, like more powerful than a locomotive and powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men, a line like the strongest man on earth seems almost limp-wristed in comparison, doesn't it? As the story begins, we learn that telegraph lines are carrying news around the world that the Vallejo Dam is cracking, and should it burst, the water will rush into the valley, killing thousands and destroying a lot of land. And just as a side note, I'm probably pronouncing the name of the town wrong. It's spelled V-A-L-L-E-Y-H-O, which would probably be Valley-Ho, but Valley-Ho sounds kind of ridiculous to me, so I'm going to say Vallejo. At the Daily Star, and yes, we're back at the Daily Star again, the editor screams for Clark Kent to cover the story. Lois tells him that Clark isn't in the office, and the editor, who is, by the way, still unnamed at this point, tells her to find him and have him report immediately to his office. Lois asks the editor to let her cover the assignment, and the editor replies, Can't. It's too important. This is no job for a girl. Yeah, Lois, go add your distinctive feminine touch to some story that needs covered in a war-torn foreign country. Leave the nice, safe, human interest stories to the real reporters. <sighs> so Lois goes back to her office and, after fuming for a bit, puts on a very festive hat, leaves the building, and on her way out just happens to bump into Clark Kent. Lois asks Clark if she would do her a favor and cover an assignment for her. Eager to impress, Clark agrees to do it, saying he'd do anything for her. Lois tells him that at the city hospital, a Mrs. Mahoney is expecting septuplets, and she wants, to, wants Clark to cover the story for her. Fun fact, according to Wikipedia, at this point in history, the largest multiple birth in the United States was a set of quadruplets in 1915. The first set of septuplets in the United States weren't born until 1985. And I point that out because it helps to inform what happens next. So, Clark is very excited at this point and pretty much falls over himself at the news, telling Lois what a swell gal she is for giving him the tip. You'd think he'd be a little suspicious having not heard the news, given how historical it would be, but he seems more overjoyed that Lois actually has need of him than the fact that he has a story, so he heads off to the hospital. Lois, meanwhile, heads to the train station where she buys a round-trip ticket to Vallejo. Cut to the hospital, where Clark talks to a nurse who is either very bored or very flirtatious, and <laughs> finds out that there is no Mrs. Mahoney registered, let alone one set to deliver septuplets. Confused, Clark heads back to the office, wondering if Lois might have pulled a fast one. Oh, Clark, you sad, innocent fella, if you only knew... It's kind of like watching Charlie Brown give Lucy the football. You know she's just going to pull it away, but Charlie Brown just won't let himself believe it. 
So back at the office, Clark gets a royal chewing out from his very angry boss. Clark tries to explain that he didn't know the hospital story was bogus, but his boss is having none of it, and furiously tells Clark to report to the cashier because he's been fired. A short while later, when he's alone, Clark doffs the clothing of the mild-mannered reporter and reveals the mighty costume form of Superman. And with red boots, finally. Hooray! So, beginning at the top of the Daily Star, Superman leaps through the night, eventually catching up to and surpassing the train headed to Vallejo. But as Superman outdistances the train, he comes across a trestle that has been severely damaged. So badly so that should the train try to cross the bridge, it will spell certain doom for the locomotive. With the train fast approaching, Superman dives to the bottom of the trestle and pushes up the support beam, bracing it, and holds it level until the train can pass over. After the train has safely passed to the other side, Superman releases the bridge and it crashes down into the water below. Inside the train, Lois and the other passengers are startled at the bridge's sudden collapse, but relieved that the train was able to pass by safely. Had it crashed but seconds earlier, all the passengers on the train would have been surely killed. The conductors make a note to send out a warning at the next stop in order to warn other trains. When the train arrives in Vallejo, Lois works her way through the crowd and... Oh, and I just realized that Lois... <laughs> Lois lost her hat somewhere. Yeah, she had it... She had it when she got on the train, but then when, when she's actually on the train, and when she's walking through the train station afterwards, she doesn't have it. Which is kind of weird. Anyway... Lois fights her way through the station, crowded with people that are trying to get out of Dodge, and hails a cab. She asks the driver if he'll give her a lift to the dam, and the cab driver tells her, You can have the car, lady. I'm taking a train out of here. So, Lois takes the cab, and as she's driving to the dam, the car runs out of gas. Superman is busy trying to stop the dam from bursting when suddenly an earthquake strikes. The quake causes a huge crevasse which swallows up Lois's car, burying Lois alive. Superman stops the raging floodwaters, then sees Lois's car. He speeds to the scene and pulls the car out of the ground, but he's too late. Lois is suffocated. Superman is distraught, there's a whole screaming thing, he spins the earth backwards. Okay, not really. I'm, I'm just kidding, folks. But this whole bit with the dam and Lois in the car, it did bring to mind a lot of memories of the end of Superman the movie. Which is odd, since that script was written, what, 40 years after this story? And I certainly don't mean to imply that Richard Donner or any of the writers lifted the idea from here, but I think it speaks to the pervasiveness of these stories that they influence, even if it's unconsciously, stories from throughout Superman's history. So anyway, let's go back. Lois tries to get a ride out to the dam, but the cab driver, proving that his mama didn't raise no fool, is getting as far away as possible from the looming torrent of liquid destruction, and tells Lois that she can have the cab herself. So, Lois gets behind the wheel and drives towards the dam at top speed. Cut to the dam itself, where we are helpfully informed that Superman has been battling like mad to prevent the dam from breaking. And it shows, it shows Superman standing on top of the dam, just sort of holding where it's cracking. It's hard to tell exactly what he's doing, because the art is from... You know, it's from a distance. But when we turn the page to the next panel, and it looks like he's just sort of leaning against it. But anyway, Superman says that he only needs to hold it a little longer and the town will be evacuated. So maybe he's 
squeezing the dam together where it's cracking or bracing it. I don't know. The important part is Superman is stopping the dam from breaking. Unfortunately, one deafening crash later and the dam completely gives way. The water races down towards the city and Superman springs into action, leaping above the rushing waves. Suddenly, Superman spots Lois's car. She is driven directly into the path of the oncoming flood and has no chance to escape. Unfortunately, despite his great speed, the rush of water reaches her before Superman, sweeping Lois in the car along with the flood, dooming Lois to what looks like certain death. Superman dives into the water and is able to reach the car. Ripping the car open, he grabs Lois and swims to shore. Upon reaching the surface, Superman sweeps Lois into his arms and begins a race to outrun the advancing water. Moving at a fantastic pace, Superman not only catches up to the front of the torrent, but passes it. With Lois in his arm, Superman leaps ahead of the water to the top of a mountain. Then, using his mighty strength, Superman pressures a large rock formation and shatters it, sending an avalanche of rock down the mountain into the path of the water. The rock fills the gap between the mountains, diverting the water from Vallejo and narrowly saving the town. Once Superman catches his breath from the amazing feat, Lois lauds him for his bravery in saving the town and its residents. And then, in the most historic moment since Superman's debut, Lois throws her arm around him with the intentions to give him a big old kiss as a reward for his heroics. Superman at first protests, but can't stave off Lois's brazen advances, and if the hilarious expression he has is any indication, he finds he quite likes locking lips with the girl reporter. He replies, wow, what a kiss, and Lois tells him that it was a super kiss for a superman. And yes, this entire three-panel sequence is going up in the show notes at greatcrypton.com, because it's quite hilarious. When I read these stories initially years ago, I gotta say, this sequence caught me a bit off guard. I was coming into them as someone who was primarily only familiar with the modern Superman, and I wasn't, I just wasn't expecting such a shift in their relationship so soon. Well, I mean, it's, it's not really a shift in their relationship, but Lois is pretty brazen here, particularly for a female character in the 30s. I mean... This is Superman's fifth comic, but only Lois's third appearance, and it did catch me by surprise. I like the scene, and it's historic, no doubt, but I just wasn't expecting it. But even so, it fits with the character that we've seen so far, and that we will see. Like I said in episode one, yes, we'll see Lois as the damsel in distress, but in these early stories, she's not your typical, cliched, helpless female. This is such a historic scene, no doubt just on its own. But this is also... Well, let's finish out the story and then we'll talk about it. So Lois kisses Superman. Then Superman decides that he's had enough of her romantic shenanigans and picks Lois up and begins running back towards town. He tells her he has to get her back to safety... In other words, someplace he'll be safe from her. And Lois replies, The first time you carried me, I was frightened, just as I was frightened of you. But now I love it, just as I love you. And as they reach the town, she says, Don't go. Stay with me. Always. A little forward, don't you think? Clearly, Lois's Silver Age obsession with marrying Superman has its roots right here. Unfortunately for Lois's romantic intentions... Superman makes a graceful exit, telling her that perhaps they'll meet again someday. 
Later, Clark makes a call back to the editor of the Daily Star, telling him that he's arrived in Vallejo via airplane and has a scoop on the dam, but not before making sure that he's rehired, to which the editor eagerly agrees. After the phone call, Clark runs into Lois and tells her that he doesn't think it was very nice of her to trick him about the woman in the hospital, but that he still likes her. And Lois replies, Who cares, the spineless worm? I can hardly look at him after being in the arms of a real He-Man. And thus, this issue is the official beginning of the famous love triangle between Clark, Lois, and Superman. Yeah, we've seen Lois treating Clark coldly for no real reason before, but this is the first place that she not only declares her undying love for Superman, but begins comparing the spineless Clark to the fantastic Superman. This may be, generally speaking, a forgettable story as far as a dam goes, but in the overall history of the character, this last page sets up the premise on which thousands of Superman stories will be built, especially under the guiding hands of Mort Weisinger. There's not too much else to say about this story. I liked it, and it was a noticeable improvement over the questionable logic and random tangents of the past few issues. And that's a very good thing. Definitely very, very good. I will say, though, that this is the first time we've seen Superman vs. Nature. So it was nice to see uh, Siegel mix it up a little bit. The first four stories were all Superman taking on a, a criminal or other miscreant of some sort. So it was nice to see something a little bit different in this story. As I said earlier in the episode, Superman's boots are colored red here for the first time. And with one notable exception that we'll get to in a couple episodes, they pretty much stay that way from here on out. Superman's belt gets a change here too. Uh because not only is it drawn in the couple panels where we get a clear shot of it as being about twice or even three times the size as normal, but it's also colored blue for some strange reason. More important in the evolution of the costume is that Superman's shield also goes through another evolution in the story. Well, a couple of them actually, at least temporarily. It will change back next issue, but in this story, I mentioned how in the title banner, the shield was an elongated pentagon shape with the solid yellow S outlined in black on the yellow field and that the entire shield had a thick red border. And that's how the shield looks when we first get a good look at Superman before he goes to Vallejo. Our next clear look at the shield isn't until the final page of the issue where we get the red border, the yellow field, but this time the S is colored red. And this right here is the closest we've gotten so far to what will become the traditional look for the shield. In fact, it is the traditional look. Uh, it's just a little different shape and the size is pretty small. But in the Golden Age, the, the shield was traditionally smaller, though it will grow as we progress. And the S in the center is much plainer, but it's definitely getting there. And unfortunately, this particular design and color scheme it disappears again and doesn't resurface for a bit. Sometimes I think that Schuster and the colorists were just blindly doing whatever they wanted on these stories, especially the colorists, seems, since that seems to be where most of the inconsistencies lie. I confess I don't really understand uh, the source of all the inconsistencies, both in the writing, you know, like with the the Daily News and, or the, I'm sorry, the Evening News and, and the Daily Star, or the differences in the, the art and the coloring. But it does give something for geeks like me to, to look at and sort of trace in a podcast and for you to listen to. 
So that's something, right? <laughs> anyway, um, places where you can find reprints of this story include Superman Chronicles Volume 1, Superman Archives Volume 1, and Superman Number 3 from 1939. It was also reprinted in the 1965 book The Great Comic Book Heroes by Jules Pfeiffer. This book is an essay written by Pfeiffer that traces the history of comics from the late 1930s to the early 1950s. I've never read it myself, but I have seen it highly recommended. The original hardcover edition contains several full-color reprints of stories featuring Superman, Batman, The Human Torch, Green Lantern, The Spectre, Captain America, The Spirit, and more. Later editions of the book do not contain the reprints, likely due to rights issues, but they are in the original hardcover from 1965 in their four-color glory. That Spectre story, by the way, was written by Jerry Siegel, who had created the, the character along with artist Bernard Bailey. Speaking of Bailey, and see how I did that segue there? Other features in this issue include the normal, the normal characters, Chuck Dawson, Pet Morgan, Marco Polo, Tex Thompson, Scoop Scanlon, and Zaytara. The Zaytara feature goes back to its normal 12 pages this time out, after being reduced to just 6 last issue. But unfortunately, the Tex Thompson feature by Bailey loses 2 pages, reducing it to 10 pages, and it will stay that way for quite some time. Other books that came out around the time this issue of Action Comics hit included More Fun Comics number 36, which saw that book shuffling its features a bit, dropping a couple and picking up a couple more. The Three Musketeers feature in that book also appears for the last time there, but Siegel and Schuster's Radio Squad story will remain. Also out was New Adventure Comics number 31 with its requisite Federal Men story, and this is actually the final issue of that title, because next month it will change its name to simply Adventure Comics, which is the title it will bear until it is finally cancelled in the 1980s. This magazine is also undergoing some changes, and in fact, in this issue of Action Comics that we talked about, the inside front cover has an ad that advertises one of the new features, Barry O'Neill, and promotes the fact that other new features are starting. And finally, there was Detective Comics number 20, which was a very historic issue. Alongside the normal features, which included, as always, Siegel & Schuster, Spy, and Slam Bradley, issue number 20 contained the debut of a brand new feature, The Crimson Avenger, written and drawn by Jim Chambers. The debut of The Crimson Avenger, who is sometimes just simply known as The Crimson, is historic because it's DC's first mask-wearing hero. While Superman might be... Their first costumed hero, the Crimson Avenger, holds the distinction of being the first to wear a mask. He was very much in the mold of, and some might even say a clone of, the Green Hornet. The Crimson Avenger was Lee Travis, publisher of the progressive Globe Leader newspaper. By night, along with his sidekick and confidant Wing, he fought crime using a variety of high-tech gadgets and technology, including a gas gun which put crooks to sleep all the while being pursued himself by police who thought he was a criminal. His costume was originally comprised of a business suit, red cloak, fedora, and a simple domino mask, though much later he would adopt a much more traditional superhero costume with tights and a cowl. And the reason I bring all this up is because the Crimson Avenger holds an interesting position in the DC Comics universe. 
While Superman, the Crimson Avenger, Batman, Wonder Woman, and all the other heroes were created independent of one another, as DC's publishing stable grew, the characters began crossing over with one another, beginning with the Justice Society of America and All-Star Comics, and eventually the Superman-Batman pairings in World's Finest, as well as the Justice League of America in the Silver Age. And eventually it gave birth to a universe where all of these characters coexisted. When this happened, in line with their real-life publishing history, Superman was regarded canonically as the first superhero. However, in 1985-1986, DC published the 12-issue limited series Crisis on Infinite Earths, which did away with decades of continuity established for all these characters. In the new continuity, Superman's backstory was altered so that he no longer debuted in the pre-World War II Golden Age era, but instead first appeared in modern times. In this revamped continuity, with Superman removed from the Golden Age playing field, this made the Crimson Avenger retroactively the first costumed adventurer in the DC Universe. And this sort of raised the ire of some fans who felt it took away from the historical importance of Superman when he was no longer considered the first hero and no longer credited as the in-story inspiration for the other heroes coming forth. And DC would try to amend this several times by crediting Superman with being the first hero that launched the Silver Age, or saying that it was Superman's appearance that caused other heroes to start their careers, or, such as in the case of Martian Manhunter, to begin operating in a more public capacity. But still, it didn't quite... It didn't quite fit. There was still the matter that there had been an entire generation of heroes operating openly long before Superman made the scene, and even though it made sense in story, it lessened historically the character's impact, you know, much to the dismay of fans. Then, in 2000, DC published Golden Age Secret Files and Origins. The comic, which had a February 2001 cover date, contained a story entitled The Dawn of the Golden Age and it was written by John Ostrander with art by Cliff Chang. In the story, Clark is assigned by Perry White to do a feature piece on the Crimson Avenger. Perry pushes him to dig deep and find out why the Crimson Avenger put on the mask, why he chose to fight crime, and exactly what it was he was avenging. Clark visits with the current members of the JSA, but after some reminiscing, they admit that they aren't able to answer Clark's questions. But they take Clark to visit a now invalid and senile Johnny Thunder, who Jay Garrick, a.k.a. the Golden Age Flash, says might know. Unfortunately, Johnny doesn't even seem to recognize the visiting society members, so they leave, concluding that maybe some stories simply aren't meant to be known. However, after the visitors leave, Johnny responds and shares, with the readers alone, the true history of the Crimson Avenger. It seems that while fighting in the trenches during World War I, Lee Travis learned the horrifying reality of what men could do to one another. After the war, Travis drifted aimlessly through Europe. He finally winds up high in the Himalayas and, unable to comprehend the cruelty of man, resigns himself to die. However, he was found by servants of the goddess-like Ramakrishna and taken to Nanda Parbat where he was nursed back to health. During his recovery, he receives a vision from Rama herself, where he sees glimpses from past and present, eventually coming to the future where he witnessed a man flying through the air, Superman. 
Rama and Travis, in their ghostly forms, watched years of Superman's exploits. They saw Superman's selflessness, how he did great things for people, and the effect he had on others, inspiring them to do great things as well. After watching a decade of Superman's acts of heroism, the vision finally came to Superman's fatal battle with the monster known as Doomsday. And Travis watches as Superman gives his life to stop the beast's rampage and save Metropolis and her citizens. After seeing this, the vision has ended and Travis is brought back into his own body. Travis demanded to know why Rama would show him such a tragedy, what the meaning of it was, and why such a noble person should have to die. And Rama replies, To save the lives of others. He believed that even the least of them was worth fighting for, even worth dying for. Tell me, little spirit, would you make a liar of such a man? At that, Travis decided that no, he wouldn't. That since this was a vision of the future, that meant there was still time. And that if he could change the world for the better, then maybe such a noble person would not have to die. And so, to avenge a man who probably hadn't even been born yet, the Crimson Avenger was born. I'm just going to say it. I really, really like this story. I mean, I am a huge fan of, of this story. Not only is it well-written and moving, but I also like that it restored Superman as being responsible, even if indirectly, for the birth of the Golden Age. Um, short of moving Superman's debut back to 1938 again, which DC understandably couldn't do, I think that this is the best the fans could hope for in regards to restoring Superman to some level of his previous historical prominence within the grander scheme of the DC Universe. And it also plays up one of the things that I love about Superman as a character, and that is that he inspires. He inspires people to do better. He inspires people to be better just by being who he is and doing what he does. I've talked about this before, and I'm sure it'll come up again, but Superman should be written as an inspiration, and what he does, he does simply because it needs done, and because he has the ability to get it done. And I'm gonna, I'm going to get off this horse because believe me, I could go on for hours um, on this point. But you know, I, I just can't stress enough how important I think that is to the Superman character, and that's why I love this story so much because it it really drives that home. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. Hi, my name is Billy Hogan, host of the Superman Fan Podcast, which explores the world of Superman and the many creators who have added to his legacy over the decades. Episodes will feature creator biographies or highlight some of their top stories they have created as well as their top characters. Other episodes will feature topics appropriate to the holiday or the time of the year. For instance, Valentine's Day will feature stories about the women in Superman's life. April Fool's Day will feature some of the bizarre Superman Silver Age stories or some of the imaginary stories that have been published. 
Halloween will feature some of the scary Superman stories or some of his strange transformations and, of course, some of the Christmas Superman stories. The website can be found at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com. The blog is supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. And you can send email to supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. I also have a spoiler-free comic book review blog of the titles I read every week, which can be found at my pull list blogspot.com and you can send email about this blog to my pull list at gmail.com so I think that about does it for another episode of the thrilling adventures of Superman I want to thank you once more for joining me and I thank you for sticking around as I went on my little side story about the Crimson Avenger and how it tied back to Superman even though the primary purpose of this show is to explore the roots of the character Taking occasional looks into the future and seeing the mighty tree that came from those roots is, I think, kind of interesting, and I hope that you find it that way as well. As always, I love hearing feedback from listeners. I really haven't gotten too much feedback on the show as of this recording. I I hope you're enjoying it, and if you are, please feel free to drop me an email at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. And even if you aren't, drop me a line anyway. You know, let me know what you like and what you don't like. Uh, suggestions for improving the show or comments or questions or corrections, just anything. Let me know your thoughts. Be sure to head on over to greatcrypton.com for images and show notes, etc. If you'd like to subscribe to the show, you can do that via the RSS feed or iTunes, and you'll find links to both of those at the site as well. The Thrilling Adventures of Superman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, and you can find that at fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork. The network serves as a hub for many different Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts, including the ones that you just heard promos for. So I highly encourage you to check all those out because there's a lot of fantastic shows there that cover pretty much every aspect of Superman's history. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Once more, I want to give you a very big thank you for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Men of Steel. There's never one around when you want one. You know what happened to me while you were off flying around? I was almost in an earthquake. I had this gas station blow up beside my car. There's telephone poles falling all over the road. I'm almost killed and I taught the whole thing off this stupid car runs out of gas. <laughs>